Maple Street, USA, late summer. A tree-lined world of front porch gliders, barbecues, the laughter of children, and the bell of an ice cream vendor. At the sound of the roar and the flash of light, it will be precisely 6.43 p.m. on Maple Street. This is Maple Street on a late Saturday afternoon. Maple Street in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. That's the opening monologue of an episode of The Twilight Zone titled, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. I get asked often, what are your top 10 episodes of The Twilight Zone? The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is in the top 10. One of the reasons it's in the top 10 is because Claude Akins puts in a stellar performance. Maybe you know Claude Akins, uh, BJ and the Bear, uh, Sheriff uh, Lobo. He also starred in uh, a TV show that ran for a couple of seasons called Moving On with Frank Converse, where he is, again, stellar. What an incredible actor. They don't make him like Claude Akins anymore. So this is in my top ten, and Claude Akins is one of the reasons why he stars in two episodes of The Twilight Zone. But here's a, here's a fun tidbit. Last year in 2019 which was a better year than 2020, they had the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. And at the Edwards Theater here in town in the mall, they showed a documentary about the Twilight Zone and six episodes on the big screen. And one of those episodes was The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. You can check it out on Netflix later today, season one, episode 22. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is the story of this typical mid-century American neighborhood that comes unglued after those who live on Maple Street hear a loud roar and see a flashing light in the sky. They soon lose all power, all electricity, there's a blackout, and they're confused. And they begin thinking, maybe it was a meteor that we saw that flew by. And then a young boy named Tommy suggests that it's probably aliens. He has read about them in his comic books. They arrive on earth, disrupt the power, but you can't recognize them because they look just like human beings. Maybe Tommy is right and aliens are behind the blackout. And with that suggestion, the whole neighborhood begins to turn on each other. They start accusing one another of being an alien in disguise. These neighbors that have known each other for so long, who have had dinner with one another, begin accusing one another. And so one by one, they accuse each neighbor of being aliens that have secretly lived among them on Maple Street all these years and who are the ones who are responsible for the blackout. Chaos ensues, and eventually the residents of Maple Street, driven by fear, come apart at the seams. And at the end of the episode, in a classic Twilight Zone twist, the scene cuts to a spaceship on a hilltop that overlooks Maple Street, and two aliens are watching the riot that is happening on Maple Street while using a device to manipulate the neighborhood's power, and they have the following conversation. Alien number one says, understand the procedure now? Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers. 
throw them into darkness for a few hours, and then just sit back and watch the pattern. Alien 2 says, and this pattern is always the same. Alien number 1 says, with few variations, they pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. And all we need to do is sit back and watch. Alien number two says, then I take it this place, this Maple Street, is not unique? Alien one says, by no means. Their world is full of Maple Streets. And we'll go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. One to the other, one to the other, one to the other. Rod Serling's closing monologue wraps up this episode and includes these words, which are very appropriate for our world today, very appropriate for 2020. He says, The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men. And the pity of it is, these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone. Well, this is exactly what was happening in 55 AD. Maple Street, the city of Corinth. Late summer, maybe early fall. A tree-lined little world of front porch gliders, barbecues, the laughter of children, and the bell of an ice cream vendor. On the maple streets in the city of Corinth, monsters had invaded. The monsters who had invaded the Corinthian church were known as Judaizers. They were a group of Jewish people who came into churches and insisted that Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, must come back under the Mosaic law in order to be saved. That's why Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. He is astonished that they would turn away so quickly from the gospel. And just like the neighbors in the Twilight Zone episode who were turning on the people that they knew, so too the Corinthian church was turning on the apostle and pastor who had planted their church. Paul had planned to visit them. He changed his mind and this sent them into a frenzy. So turn in your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Our big idea today is simply this. Blast your heart with the gospel. Every single day, this is our work as believers. We need to blast our hearts with the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wanted to remind the Corinthian church of when he visited them. But he changed his plans, and that caused the Corinthians to second-guess Paul's motives, and it began souring their relationship. There was a misperception there and it began souring the relationship. So observe the pettiness of sinners. Paul says, I'm not going to be able to come visit you. I've changed my mind. And the Corinthians are like, we hate you now. You don't love us. Second Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So what is Paul referring to here when he says, because I was sure of this? What is he so sure of? 
Well, he's looking back on his motives in ministry, which he has already mentioned in verse 12. His conscience is clear. He's not playing mind games with this church. He loves them. He has been real with them, genuine, honest. In fact, he really did plan on visiting them, but he changed his mind. In fact, they can go back and read what he wrote them in 1 Corinthians, as he told them in verse 13. We want you to understand what you read. He's saying, you can go back and read in in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, that I wrote to you about my plans. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 7. Paul told them, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So Paul did plan on visiting the Corinthian church. Then he planned to head off to Macedonia, and then he would return to Corinth on his way back. And he spelled it out very plainly in his first letter, and then he even added this little phrase, if the Lord permits. But Paul changed his mind. There was a whole bunch of drama going on in the church of Corinth and Paul decided not to visit them because he didn't want his visit to be one where he had to get in their face and rebuke them for the sin that was prevalent and unaddressed in their church. Most likely, Paul would have done some form of church discipline. And Paul did not want his visit with this church that he planted and loved. He didn't want his visit to be full of drama and to be full of pain and heartache. And so instead, he sent them a letter to correct them. It's a letter that came in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And this letter caused all the friction in their relationship and began to sour it because Paul was not showing up. Him not being there caused them to misperceive and misunderstand his motives and his heart, and therefore it began to sour their relationship. And the super apostles, these Judaizers who had invaded the church and who were very anti-Paul, they jumped on this opportunity to throw Paul under the bus in hopes of gaining the allegiance and the heart of the Corinthians. And so the Judaizers, these super apostles, were whispering things like, see, he doesn't really care about y'all. He doesn't love you. But Paul did want to visit them and spend time with them. And he gives us the reason why in verse 15. So that you might have a second experience of grace. What does Paul mean when he mentions this second experience of grace? He's simply talking about the gospel, about sharing God's grace with them again. He's talking about rehearsing the gospel together, reminding them of truth. That's what Paul means when he uses this phrase, second experience of grace. He wanted to remind them of who they are in Christ, that they are justified, that they are forgiven. He wanted to remind them of God's kindness and God's favor and God's grace. But why does Paul use this specific phrase, second experience of grace? I think it's very intentional. I think Paul is being polemical here. He's taking a jab at the super apostles. Now, let me explain. 
The super apostles were most likely some type of Judaizers, Jewish people who would come into Gentile churches and tell Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, that they must adhere to the Mosaic law and be circumcised in order to really be saved. These Judaizers said that the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were still to be observed by Christians. All those laws that you read about that say you can't wear this kind of clothing, you can't eat this kind of food, all of those things the Judaizers were saying, those are still binding on Christians. And that they must do these things in order to gain and maintain God's blessing and favor. But the problem with the Judaizers was that they said Gentile believers had to keep these laws in order to be made right with God and to stay in his favor. They failed to understand the gospel, that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, that he fulfilled the civil and ceremonial laws, and that he perfectly obeyed the law for us. So, it's not by accident that Paul uses this phrase here, second experience of grace. Let me explain. In Greek, it's a form of the words deuteros and charis. Deuteros means second, and charis means grace. So, why is it significant that Paul uses this phrase, deuteros charis? I want you to have a deuteros charis when I show up. Here's why. Because the super apostles were stressing the Mosaic law as a means to righteousness. They no doubt would have been pointing the Corinthian church to God's law, the Mosaic law, in the book of Deuteronomy as a means of gaining and keeping God's favor. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, the book of Deuteronomy in the Septuagint is titled Second Law because it's the second book in the Old Testament that records the giving of God's law to the nation of Israel, the first obviously being the book of Exodus. In Hebrew, however, The book of Deuteronomy is simply titled, These Are the Words, which are the first words of the book. Ela Hadivarim. These are the words. But the Greek translation, when they translate it from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek translation is called Deuteronomy, which means second law. So Deuteronomy comes from the words Deuteros, which means second, and Namos, which means Law, Deuteronomy, so second law. Now, notice the words. Deuteros means second. Namos means law. There's Deuteronomy. But then Paul uses this phrase, phrase Deuteros charis, second grace, as opposed to second law. So I think Paul intentionally uses this phrase here, second grace. Grace, Deuteros Charis, in a polemical way to take a jab at the Judaizing super apostles, these false teachers who were telling the Corinthians that in order to gain and maintain and keep favor with God, you have to completely keep and obey the Mosaic law, even the civil and ceremonial laws. 
like what kind of clothing you wear, what kind of food you can or can't eat. The Judaizers would have stressed Deuteronomy, the second law, as a way to gain favor with God. So Paul says he wants the Corinthians to experience second grace when he shows up to see them. It's just a subtle jab and a wink of the eye by the Apostle Paul. He planned on coming to Corinth not to beat this church down with the law, not to come to them and say, you need to do more, you need to try harder. But instead, Paul comes to share the gospel that they might enjoy a second grace, a second reminder of grace, a second helping of grace, if you will. I think this is what Paul means when he mentions his visit as a second experience of grace. He wants to show up in person, look the Corinthian church in the eyes, and tell them, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. You can rest in his imputed righteousness. You don't have to try hard to get God to love you or to approve of you. And you don't have to try hard to get other people to love you and approve of you. You are accepted in Christ. And now you can just rest Paul wants to remind this church they don't have to get on the performance treadmill. They don't have to revert back to trying to earn God's love and favor. Paul wants to show up and preach his vintage Paul messages, which are Christ crucified. And when you, like the Corinthians, are tempted into thinking that your behavior earns God's love, somehow earns and keeps his favor, as if your behavior keeps you in his good graces. When you think that way, you need to blast your heart with the gospel. You need to blast your heart with the good news that Jesus paid it all, that you are accepted, that you are forgiven, that you are loved. When the monsters of shame and the monsters of guilt and the monsters of condemnation show up on the maple street of your heart, you need to blast your heart with the gospel. To blast your heart with the gospel is to experience God's grace again. It's to experience second grace. That's what living by God's grace means. Jerry Bridges said, living by grace instead of by work means you are free from the performance treadmill. It means God has already given you an A when you deserved an F. He has already given you a full day's pay even though you may have worked only one hour. It means you don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines To earn God's approval. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus. And you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. Nothing you ever do will cause him to love you any more or any less. He loves you strictly by his grace given to you through Jesus. And so here's the gospel 
For those of us who are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, God has already given every single one of us an A when we all clearly deserve an F. And we all know we deserve an F. Just look back over your life over the last 24 hours and you know what the report card should say. And if you think, well, pastor, you don't know me, I'd probably get a B plus. Well, you need to look in the class that says pride and you'll see that you have flunked out. On that day, when we stand before Jesus, we're going to get our report cards and we will see that we all got straight A's. And we will know why. Not because of us. It's all due to grace. We will know that we have failed. We'll be fully aware for all of eternity that we only got straight A's because of grace. And we'll just be amazed and awestruck by that truth. It will seem too good to be true, but it will be true. This is the message of grace that Paul wanted to bring to Corinth on his way to Macedonia and then on his way back again. He kept rehearsing the gospel with them so that they would become fluent in it. Paul's example here teaches us that we too need to be gospel fluent as individual disciples and as a church. We need to be gospel fluent so that we can remind other people of God's grace and help them recalibrate their hearts when the monsters of guilt and shame and condemnation show up. And so in essence, discipleship is just Mutual gospel encouragement. And that's what we want people to experience here at Grace. We want people to be gospel fluent so that we can mutually encourage one another with the gospel. As Jeff Vanderstelt says in his book, Gospel Fluency, he says, Gospel fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You become fluent through immersion in a gospel-speaking culture. Gospel fluency means we take captive all the lies that we are, every single one of us are prone to believe, and we fill that void with the truths of the gospel. We take captive these lies, we remove them out of our hearts, and then we insert the gospel in that emptiness, in that void. We discover over and over again how God's grace speaks a better word into our marriages. We learn over and over again how to forgive others because God has forgiven us. And we remind ourselves that our identity is not the sum total of our successes. And our identity is not the sum total of our failures. Instead, our identity is wrapped up in Jesus' obedience for us. So, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to blast our own hearts with the gospel, but we also need to do what Paul is doing here. Speak gospel truths to one another so that we and they can experience second grace. We're building a a gospel-speaking culture here at Grace. What does that look like? It's knowing the gospel so well that it becomes like a mother tongue to us. We have to learn this. I'm learning right now with teenagers. I'm learning a new language. 
texting with one of my boys several times, and they say things, and I'm like, uh, I don't know, what, what do you mean by that? No cap? What do you mean? And, and one of them replied, it take too long to explain what I mean by no cap. I think it means no lying. That's, that's my guess, is that no lie? You're not, you're not lying, you're being truthful? That's my guess. I'm not fluent with current teenage language. I'm trying to become fluent so that I can speak. And that's what we want to do here at Grace is become fluent in the gospel so that we can share with other people and mutually encourage them with that good news. When we do this, we then begin to filter all of life through the truths of the gospel. We're able to speak gospel truths into any situation or struggle that we or others are facing. And when we preach the gospel to one another, we're not just simply talking about telling them, Jesus died for you. That is part of the gospel. But there is this wide-angle lens of the gospel From our being chosen in Christ in eternity past to the incarnation of Jesus in a real human body with a real human spirit to his perfect life and death to his resurrection by the power of the spirit to his ascension to the right hand of God as our high priest to his reigning as king now to his soon return and to his creation and bringing in of the new heaven and the new earth. All of that is the gospel. And so the gospel just doesn't bring about forgiveness of sins and save us from hell. It does do that. That's why we want to share the gospel with the unbelievers that we know in our life. We need forgiveness of sins. We need saving from hell because we're all sinners. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is all those other things I mentioned. And it empowers us to live a whole new life today by the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so to help facilitate this and kind of cultivate this uh, gospel-fluent culture, over the next month we're going to be sending out email devotionals in the Vine, which is our, our daily email devotional that we send out. You can sign up, email the church office. We're going to be sending out daily emails Monday through Friday that will include little short prayers that will help you do our big idea today, which is blast your heart with the gospel. We want to disciple you in how to pray so that you can blast your own heart with the gospel. And also, it will help us continue creating this gospel-speaking culture here at Grace. We'll also be sending out a gospel resource link every day so that if you want to read more books on the gospel you can do that and then become more fluent in the gospel and learn and blast your heart with the gospel and then share it with others. And if you're new here to Grace and the idea of preaching the gospel to your own heart is new to you or you want to learn how to do it better, let me recommend this great book called Hidden in the Gospel, Truths You Forget to Tell Yourself Every Day. It's by William Farley. It'll be in the email, a link to it tomorrow that goes out. It's short. It's very easy to read. I think it's like 100, 115 pages or something. Very easy to read. Uh, It speaks to the truths of the gospel and how you can speak those truths into your lives and into the lives of others. For instance, how do you, how does the ascension of Jesus Christ, how do you preach the ascension of Jesus Christ to God's right hand? How do you, how in the world do you preach that to your heart? 
And what difference does it make that Jesus ascended on high and sits at the right hand of God the Father? You can preach the ascension of Christ to your heart, and this little book will just help you, help you to do that. We need to become fluent in the gospel because every single one of us has a tendency to revert to a performance-based relationship with God. We know we are saved by grace alone. We know we're saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we still assume that we can somehow earn God's acceptance and his blessings in our daily lives by our performance, by what we do or that we might miss out on something because of something we didn't do. We still just don't get grace, do we? We we still don't get it. I think it's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 7, in the coming ages, plural, God is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward those who are in Christ. In the coming ages, plural, God is going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Why? Because ages, plural, into eternity, we're still not going to get it. And we still don't get it now, do we? Here's proof that you and I need to become more fluent in the gospel. Proof that we need to blast our hearts with the gospel. And if any of the following is true of you, then it's proof that monsters have invaded your life, invaded your heart, and you need a second experience of grace. If any of these are true, then you know monsters have invaded your life and heart, and you need a second experience of grace. Let me ask you, do you ever live with a kind of vague sense of God's disapproval? You live with this kind of vague sense of God's disapproval. If that's you, then you need a second experience of grace. You need to blast your heart with the good news. If you live with this vague sense of God's disapproval and your default way of thinking of Him is that He always has a frown on His face. He's like this grumpy old dad. Or you think He's always mad and you always seem to let Him down. If that's you, then monsters have invaded your life and you need a second experience of grace. Or if you feel sheepish bringing your needs before God when you've just failed Him, then you need a second experience of grace. Like when you blow it, you do that sin that you have repented of 10,000 times and you think, I can't approach God and pray now. Surely there must be some probationary period that I'm put into before I can talk to God in prayer. If you think, I just sinned, how can I ask him for anything? I need him to come through for me right now. But I just sinned. If that's you, you need to blast your heart with the gospel. You need a second experience of grace. Or if you feel that you deserve an answer to prayer, because of all of your hard work and sacrifice, then you need a second experience of grace. You have a misunderstanding of what grace is. Grace is free. It's God's unmerited favor. You cannot earn it. So if you think your obedience somehow earns his favor, you don't understand grace. 
But pastor, let me tell you what I do. I get up and pray for two hours every single day. And I read the book Leviticus and I enjoy it. And I serve at church and I do so much for him. So he owes me. If that's you, then you don't understand grace. Or maybe you assumed you, that you've sinned so many times that you've used up all your credit of forgiveness. If so, you need a second experience of grace. You need to blast your heart with the gospel. Like you've sinned your sin, the one that you're good at, the one that you keep coming back to time and time again, and you begin thinking, there's no way God can forgive me now. I must have used up all of my grace credit by now. If that's you, you need a second experience of grace. Dare to believe the gospel in that moment. Defy your own memory. And when these accusing monsters come into your life, into your mind and into your heart, and they remind you of your sin, they remind you of your past, dare to believe the gospel and defy your own memory and say, yes, Jesus even died for that. Or maybe you feel more confident before God if you've been faithful with your quiet times and prayer and witnessing. That's true. You need a second experience of grace. If you think somehow you get a speed pass right to God, not because of Jesus' performance, but because of yours, and you feel more confident, like I started reading the Bible in January, and it's August, and I haven't missed three chapters a day, then I deserve a speed pass to God. If that's you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand how grace works. You need to blast your heart with the gospel. Or if you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in God's eyes right now, you need a second experience of grace. Maybe you kind of have this nagging sense of always just feeling dirty. There's shame from your past, from your sin. You just always feel dirty. You never feel clean. You never feel pure, blameless in the eyes of the Lord. If that's you, you're listening to monsters. You don't understand grace. You need to rehearse the gospel. Maybe you fear that the day may not go as well as you expected because you missed your quiet time. If so, you don't understand grace. You don't understand how it works. Maybe you oversleep and you don't have time to pray and read the word of God. Or maybe you don't even want to pray or read the word of God. And now you begin thinking, my whole day's going to be ruined. Something bad's going to happen. Car's going to break down. House is going to burn down. Loved one's going to die. Going to get some form of cancer. All because I didn't read my Bible and pray. If that's you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand God's character, who he is. You need to blast your heart with the gospel. God's not out to get you if you don't read your Bible. He's not that petty. Maybe you assume you can do something to make him love you more or do something that would make him love you less. If that's you, you don't understand grace and you need a second experience of it. If you think you can do things to make God love you more or if you mess up and somehow his love for you begins to diminish, then you don't understand grace. Monsters have invaded your life, your heart, your mind, and you need to blast your own heart with the gospel again and again and again. 
You need to tell yourself that Jesus paid it all, that it is finished. And then you need to rest. Rest in the green pastures and the still waters of the gospel. In our 1030 service that we're having outside, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have another opportunity to blast our own hearts with the gospel. The meal of the Lord's Supper communion keeps the monsters of guilt, shame, and condemnation away. The Lord's Supper keeps us sane. It keeps us from turning on one another. It's one of the main ways, one of the very means of grace whereby we recalibrate our hearts and give glory to God. Every time we come to the table, the Lord is saying to, the, to each and every one of us, my heart is wide open to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you are welcome here. Come, welcome home. So as we close, let's repent. Let's repent of not believing the gospel. Let's repent of not believing that God is as good as he says he is. And let's rejoice that Jesus paid it all and that it is finished. And then let, let's rest in the green pastures and still waters of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do repent for not believing your good news. You have spelled it out all over your word and we struggle to believe and we repent and say forgive us and we struggle to believe that you are as good as you say you are. So forgive us of that and help us to believe. We believe, help our unbelief and help us to rejoice today in the finished work of your son and then help us to rest in those green pastures by those still waters of the gospel. Give us a second experience of your grace today, we pray in Jesus' name.